naked news, ladies and gentlemen. I only know three other barracks in the world, and I'm pretty much related to all of them. So. <laughs> this is like being this is like being on the trading floor in '87. I suppose it's a bit like kissing your sister. You really. Are. I'm a professional dribbler, so <laughs> let's let's do the numbers, Condor. Around the grounds, the Barnsley ball bag. We'll go to the pub. <laughs> Trying to raise awareness for men's mental health and anything that's happening in sport. Please make welcome the Ball and All podcast. James Tiger Woods, Beric Eckhart, and the king of speaking in the third person, Steve Condor Condo Condor. Okay, it's a Friday. We are back in the shed for episode 80. I feel like Steve Smith. You're fucking like, that excited. Yeah, you I am. Blow my ears out again. Well, Can I'm excited just... because I don't have to deal with council. I don't have to deal with all the other Muppets that come with organising a live podcast. Unfortunately, we've got some uh, devastating news. Matt Rogers' podcast is off. Yeah. Yeah. So. Big shout out to all the litigators out there that live around the bolo. Um, you know. Feel free to just get a hobby or just fucking go for a nice weekend away or, or, or fucking move somewhere else. (laughs) If you don't like noise, don't move next to a bowling club. There's another one that lives near the boat channel too. Yeah. Anyway, we've got, uh, we've got an unfortunate situation until the bolo sorts out uh, some issues with some neighbours that we can't really do an uh, outside uh, podcast. So it's not happening. We'll be back better and bigger in uh, 2023 and I don't know who the guest will be. Hopefully Matty will come back and he can fit us into his calendar and we can crank it up again. Yep. Uh, Sponsors, James, uh, we've got plenty of sponsors to thank because we haven't done a long-form podcast for a little bit, only about a week. Um, Station Grocer. Station Grocer, uh, you know, incredible place. You can buy deer meat. You can buy, you know, any sort of – Frozen food. You can even, I think you can even, and I'm not joking, you can buy, they are now selling full on summer reptiles. So reptiles that are, you know, around in the sun, you got blue tongues, they're selling a lot of different types of water dragons and the occasional non-venomous snake. What's the, what's the price difference between a non-venomous and a blue tongue? Well... Depends how many coffees you buy. <laughs> <laughs> the discount. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, elders, elders, elders were a big supporter of last weekend, uh, which was the uh, Healthy Minds Golf Day, um, which sort of um, brings us into pretty much a month of celebration because we've got morning of the mo tomorrow. Oh, pump for that. Um, elders. Yeah. So anyway, elders, uh, elders uh, stumped up last weekend. Um, I don't know. They're still going all right, aren't they? Yeah. Bordo, thank you, mate. Thanks yeah. for all the support. And a shout out to the Healthy Minds boys because that was a cracking day, that one. Epic day. I know you put in three teams on behalf of the ball yeah, and all. We had all, ball and all. All represented well. Yeah, ball and all. Ball and all 2.0 and ball and all junior. Junior were probably – they think they were the best performers and they think they've got a gig in the MF uh, golf day. Little do they know, they don't. I feel really? like – I I've, thought they were a good injection. No, they will, but they might have to pay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we fucking, after we got some beers and had a tequila shot, I feel like we came good. No, we were good. Yeah, we were good. <laughs> yeah, but it took us a while to come good. It took us nine holes of just struggle street, but. That's all right. Uh, good day. Club Lennox, um, the beers will be flung this afternoon uh, when we have uh, Movember sign on and uh, Johnny's down there to uh, collect the cash entries, uh, heat draw for tomorrow, the big day. Yep, looking forward to it, boys. Which, uh, uh, 
Woody, what are you? Uh, have you got a surprise for what you're going at tomorrow? You I'm going to release it now because no one will hear this till probably yep. after. So I'm going to let everyone know I'm going as a mime. So a 1925. A mime. 1935 mime. mime. So a French mime. So just in the streets of Paris, you know, along the uh, Jean Gillet. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Jean Gillet? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> along the road. I'm just one of those busking mimes. I right. love it. Yeah, it has absolutely nothing to do with a retro single fin event, but it's fucking random. <laughs> so, well, Barnsley, yeah. no one's going to know before tomorrow. So, can you tell us what you're going as? Well, my character, I don't think, I don't think they surfed in India either. But Mahatma Gandhi's coming along tomorrow. So, Mahatma uh, Gandhi. Mo, Mo Gandhi. Yeah, he's okay. going to he's going to make an appearance, and he'll be doing wellness readings <laughs> in a tent. Uh, he'll also, I think, he's going to do preheat chanting. And, preheat chanting and. He, you actually can – he can bless rocks and you chuck a rock in your bodies. It's good luck for your heat. Well, that, it's, a, it's a great segue into our guest today um, because he hasn't been to the Northern Rivers for a while. He's been in uh, – he's been in, well, downtown Victoria really, um, probably in quite a few lockdowns down there with your government. Um, but it's a pleasure to welcome uh, Buff Parnell. Buffy. DJ, DJ Eddie. It's actually D- Farnell, but that's fine. I'll take Parnell. Parnell. Yeah. P is a good letter. It's Farnell. It's Farnell. Fuck. But that's okay. fine. Yeah. It's fine. Buff, okay, so we'll go again. So it's a pleasure to, to welcome Buff Farnell. That's, <laughs> you nearly that's did it again. Right. It's pretty hard. Yeah, but I'm is, just going to call you DJ Eddie. It is hard. Yeah, well, you can, but I'm officially out of character at the moment. Yeah. But right. if, if we call me Buff and then well, we'll just go Eddie back when I'm Eddie. Yeah, that's How fine. long is it since that's you've fine. been here? Oh, easy be like would you probably know Betty? You're good yeah. with numbers. Two and a half years, at least. maybe something. 2019 was yeah, the last one. Yeah, you did 19 was the last one. Yeah, and then 2020, you're in. Um, I think, uh, sort of Hitler's regime. They had that all fenced off in Victoria, didn't they? So you were stuck <laughs> yeah, down there, Mex- down in Mexico. <laughs> yeah, down couldn't, in Mexico. And leave. then 2021 is you were ne- you guys were nearly coming up, and then I think they had another lockdown, and yeah. you weren't able to get there. But 2022. Yeah. Yeah, back. And, You're back. Uh, it feels great. It I'm feels, excited it's, too. It's beautiful to be back I'm up pumped here. up. We uh, need you. Last time you were here, did you play? Did DJ Eddie get out and get amongst it? Yeah, yeah. So in 19, did we do the party? Were we at the um, the old piggery in Byron? Yeah. I yeah. think at the which turned into the brewery or whatever yep. it is now. Yeah, we're out the back of there. That was nice. That yeah. was a nice party. Solid hit out. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was really good. Double-decker bus up there. Uh, yeah, 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 that's, the double-decker bus trip's incredible always. It was good fun. Right. So, Buff, uh, before we get on to the, uh, the Movember and, uh, and DJ Eddie and all the rest of the great things you've done, take us back to where you grew up because there's obviously an enormous love for the snow, uh, hence why you still uh, live in Victoria, I'd imagine. Yeah, 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 exactly. So where did it all start? Uh, yeah, well, I grew up in Victoria. Um, folks are from down there, grew up uh, in various different areas, but spent a fair bit of time up in the Kiwa Valley, which is in the northeast of Victoria, up towards uh, Falls Creek and Mount Hotham. And so that's the most of the time I spend now is up there at Hotham, like DJ and doing my character gigs and then doing work for the resort as well. So skiing for the resort out of character in a more of a kind of serious role, <laughs> you'd call it. Um yeah, doing, doing ski-related work. Um, I've been with Quickie for years. That's one of the ways that I started with Morning of the Mo because I met Nat Johnson from up here and um, he asked me about this idea he had originally to do the comp um, 
Uh, so that's that's how that kind of got started, that link. But, yeah, yeah, from Victoria, grew up down there. Folks had a goat farm actually. A goat farm? Yeah. yeah a lot of people think it's a joke. I've done it and I use it as material definitely but a lot of people go, no, no, you didn't have a goat farm. But, yes, I actually grew up on a goat farm. My parents are hippies uh, as am I kind of. So, yeah, we had a goat farm in a beef farming valley so you can imagine it's not a bad way to – build up kind of uh, comedy resilience around um, <laughs> dealing with beef farmers with a goat farm. Have and you it, considered having goats out here, Barnsley? Mate, it would help my mowing no end. The fuel cost at the yeah. moment's going ridiculous, but the fencing, I've got an yeah, issue. That would be – you'd yeah. have to fence it pretty well, inc- wouldn't I? Oh, they are incredible creatures for getting out of fences. Amazing. Yeah. They lay down on their side and shimmy, do like a little sort of Beyonce <laughs> shimmy under the fence, stand up on the other side and eat all the neighbours' fruit trees or whatever it is. Yeah, because, mate, this really is – you could go for miles. Yeah. And then I'd have to, you know, protect all the fruit trees and the veggie gardens. Totally. I mean, chicken's about enough. Yeah. No, go so. to radical – they climb trees. They're really? radical. Oh, yeah. yeah they're radical. They're like – you've got a virtual deer fencing to keep them in. They climb yeah, trees. Right. They dead set climb trees. A mate, that, a, mate of, a mate of mine's dad would rent out goats – and you put them on big runs or big leads, yep. and they just tear through Lantana. Like if you had a bad big bushland, yeah, they'd eat it in yeah fuck a month. Blackberries, you know what I mean? You could, all right, here's five goats to get rid of all your Lantana and yeah. any shrub that's you don't want, and yeah. they just smash it. Yeah. So, so what were your folks doing with them? Were you using them for meat, or was it more for no milk, the, milk, milk stuff? Yeah, because yeah. my mum's vego, so yeah. and and that was back sort of you know in the eighties and stuff like that. So at the time, yeah. not a lot of. Not a lot of uh, vegetarians around, especially moving the family into a beef and dairy, well, essentially a dairy sort of valley. Um, but, yeah, we were, we were doing uh, milk and cheese. Mum was doing milk and cheese with her and Dad, Dad was working down there as well. Um, so we were running the farm essentially, um, which was a dive in because I, we had come from um, sort of farming stock a few generations yeah. back. But when you haven't done it and you dive in and you've got goats, like with the fences and stuff, it was a pretty kind of crazy thing to do. How do you actually get milk, cheese? Like, this is a, probably a dumb question, but no, I know it comes out of it. What do you, how's the process? Did you do it on site? Like, what do you do? Yeah. yeah so it's same, same as a cow, but you're working with two, two udders or yeah. two nipples, not four. So a little less complicated. <laughs> and also goats are really easy to milk because they're a pretty placid animal, whereas cows, you know, they'll poo in the milk and they'll kick you and stuff like that, whereas goats are pretty mellow. As long as they're happy, you can, you know, and you've got warm hands like like, like <laughs> yeah. any sort of udders. Um, they're, they're good, yeah, and you just milk them and then the cheese is – it's just separating the curds and whey like you make cow cheese. And then it's just matured in different ways. Like my mum used to make like a ricotta, like a young yeah. cheese or, or like cream cheese and ricotta. But then you can, you can make cheddars and those sort of goat's cheeses people have with all the platters and everything like that and they roll it in, um, you know, like soot and put almonds on the outside of it and that. And that's a longer – That's a it's, it's kind of a pretty sharp sort of cheese. But, yeah, same way as making any milk, um, any milk sort of product cheese but do it with goat's milk. Awesome. Yeah. Did you it's, have a favourite goat? Uh, yeah, we had one called Nanny. That's what started off my mum's sort of love of goats because when we'd moved from the city, she had a goat that we, we actually got it from these um, crazy Lebanese guys out on the Hume Highway. That had, <laughs> yeah, they had like a, one of those places with goats running around on almost like uh, semi-industrial land 
where they just, like you were saying, for the lantana and they just use them to clear blackberries and that. And we went there and I think they sell them, you know, because in the Middle East they're eating a lot of goats and stuff in curries and everything. And my mum really wanted a goat. So I went there with dad. We'd been at the drag races at Calder, I think, because my dad's <laughs> involved. Awesome. He's involved in, in motor racing. He used to build ignitions for race cars and stuff. So we're out there and, he's, and, and dad was just like, we're not getting a goat. And mum's like, yeah, we've, let's get a goat. We went there. I think it was five bucks and I had to chase it with the Lebanese guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> caught it by the back legs and it was only a kid. It was a little one and uh, took it home in the car. Yeah, and we had that. That goat came with us for years, moved up to the farm and I think lived the whole time we were there in the Kiwa Valley and then came down when my folks uh, moved to the coast many years later. I think Nanny lived for – she must have lived for like 25, 30 years or something like that. So wow. was that the start of the idea of yeah. let's get a goat farm? Yeah, for sure. Mum was really interested in goats and because she already had this one when we moved up there, <laughs> started getting the goats. And, I mean, we had other stuff on the farm. We had just did some cattle. There were there were dairy cattle in that came from other farms and other goats. Goats. There was a there was actually quite a big goat farm on the other side of the Dedarang Gap, which is sort of on your, when you're on the way up to Wodonga. And so we used to look after their goats a bit because I used to take them to shows and stuff like that. But yeah, that's that's definitely what I got interested in. It. She just always loved goats, so having the pet goat kind of led into having a whole bunch of goats. What well, I've got to, I've got to ask. Early on, when you're just getting familiar with goats, tell us the one of them attacked yeah. you, or you know the ones you see on social media where they ram a kid or something yeah. like, yeah. like at a petting zoo. It must yeah. have been a good one. Well, yeah, look, there there was numerous attack stories, especially with bucks, because the bucks are oh. radical, especially if they're if they're not castrated and they're running with the nannies and they're kind of wild. Yeah, they'll they're... get you, and they know the difference between like my mum could go in, no worries. I'd go in or dad, <laughs> and they just go you yeah, straight away, full on, like, and yeah. work out like angles. Where, where you couldn't see him coming from behind a shed, come out and just attack from behind so you couldn't quite see So him. almost borderline ninjas, like like yeah. a farm ninja. They are like, they're like ninjas. But the worst one I ever had was a sheep. Fuck. So we had we, – like people have a dairy farm or, um, you know, they'll have a, a, a sheep and then they might have one goat as a pet, but my mum flipped it. So we had all the goats <laughs> and, and had sheep. this pet sheep called Charlie who was a ram. And one day I went in to get eggs out of the paddock and I, I, I was, it was kind of stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. I must have been about seven or eight. And I went to get the eggs and as I came out and uh, locked the chicken coop, he came from behind and hit me so hard in the back of the legs. I got airborne. It was like a six-foot air <laughs> to a flat landing and just wasted me. I thought he'd broken my legs and that. With, with his big – he had massive horns. And yeah, mum came in and dragged me out, and he had me pinned on the ground. But that's the irony of it. It was a sheep, not a goat. <laughs> a goat farm that wasted me. It's farm life's life. crazy. It is. It's, it's like shit can go on anywhere. Yeah. How much time have you spent on a farm? None, but that's why I don't. Right. That's why I've st- stuck to the coast. Right. Because I wouldn't survive out there. Shit like that, I'd move out if I was seven. So I'd Safe. leave. Yeah, it's safer to be on the coast. Well, so, uh, close to Hoffman, when was the first introduction to, uh, to the snow? Well, the funny thing is I was talking to someone about this from the ski industry the other day. The ski industry is a little bit different, I find, to surfing. Surfing's got – and it's one of the things I love about it actually is that there's something really egalitarian about surfing where you could go to cash converters and get a surfboard and go surfing. You could walk. You could go on a bus. Skiing is actually quite classist. And, you know, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way. It's just something that one of the things I don't particularly like about it is that to, to ski, you have to have quite a lot of money because you've got to have a decent car, you've got to get up the hill, 
pay entry fees. Yeah, there's yeah. all sorts of things yeah. involved in it. And it gets more and more expensive as you get more into it. Like kids who want to do ski racing, if you were, say, young, like when you were doing performance surfing, if you were in the same category in skiing, you can't just go, oh, yeah, I'm going to surf today or I'm going to hook up with yeah. Rabbit and he's going to coach me a little bit. You, you can't do that. You just have to lay out money to do it. So you have to work out a way to if you, if you want to go skiing or you want to get good at it and like like any sport, you have to be doing it and be work out a way in your head that it's actually going to work. So I went up there and got a job because I was at art school before that. Went to art school in Melbourne, um, studying fine art and sculpture. Like, but, but did you, in your sort of teenage years, did you ski much? I, I didn't really, even oh, really? though we were on the farm. My folks, okay. it was a goat farm and yeah, having a goat farm wasn't very productive and there were bushfires <laughs> and stuff. So essentially they were pretty poor. So yeah. we, we didn't have enough money to go ski and I used to hitchhike down um, to school or ride my push bike and see cars going past with skis and you could see the, the mountains at the end of the valley. You could see them. It was just like a dream. You're like, oh, I'd go and ski and that'd be cool. But I just had a BMX bike burning around on the on the farm. And it wasn't until my mum took me cross-country skiing. Dad wasn't really into it. He didn't like the cold. But mum took me up to Mount Buffalo cross-country skiing with her sister and my brother. It was the first time I ever went skiing. I reckon I was about 11. And, um, yeah, first day cross-country skis and I built a jump and just launched off it. I think I, I – I wasted myself and it like just got big air. But after that day, I was like, yeah, I'm going skiing forever. That was yeah. the hook. That was it. Yeah. yeah. It didn't matter that it was cross-country skis or, or whatever. Cross-country skis are the ones where you like lift <laughs> up and shit, eh? <laughs> exactly. And then you shoot the rifle. Is that the one where they race? They like <laughs> – yeah. not like, you know. No, it is. It is. You're in right. In the Winter Olympics where they – Yeah. That's called biathlon because yeah. it's a twin sport, so yeah. you shoot and ski. But, yeah, that is the type of ski you use in cross-country yeah. skis. It's a really light, narrow ski and then you've got uh, a binding which is only joined at the toe. So it's kind of a mix between skiing and oh, sort of mountain it's running and sliding, stuff together. Eh? Rollerblading yeah. almost on Rollerblading, snow. yeah, rollerblading. It's kind of your hip flexors just would get the oh, biggest workout. Oh, incredible. They they lock up. If, you, yeah. if you're not used to it, you have to stretch and everything. It's, it's a really – I think they say it's one of those sports that is uh, the most demanding, a complete body workout. They reckon you've got to be uh, – the ratings in terms of fitness of a cross-country skier are pretty much off the charts. Yeah. It's like up there with your Tour de France cyclists exactly. and that. Yeah. And yep. then you've got to have, obviously, when you're doing what you said, the biathlon, where yep. you've got to do all those events and then steady yourself to make a shot at yep. a target and then continue on again and do the loop. It's phenomenal. Oh, it's crazy. I, did, I tried it a couple of times only a few years ago when we were uh, – me and my family managed a lodge up there, up at Mount Hotham, and we had a um, cross-country ski team come in, uh, all, all female. It was from a girls' school in Melbourne. And a few of them were biathlon athletes. Yep. And uh, so they invited us down and they use laser rifles because all the stuff to do with firearms, you've got to store them in the lodge and it's really complex these days with firearms. So they use laser rifles. Yeah, okay. So anyone can have a crack at it. So And I cross-country ski, so I went down and you ski until you're basically knackered. You do like 500 metres of circuits and then you've got to shoot standing up and get I think it's three bullseyes and then you do it laying down. And the laying down one, not bad. I mean, I don't shoot rifles, but not bad. But standing up, ridiculous how hard it was. You have to use all these techniques because you've got to almost sort of slow your heart rate down. Yeah. And you get everything zoned in. Get your shoot. focus. Yeah. 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 And then – and if you miss, you've got – in the Olympics, you have to do um, like – they put a penalty on you. So you have to do this loop, like a 100-metre loop, and then come back and shoot again to try and get that target. Uh -huh. Otherwise, 
you, you get so many points deducted, you're never going to win. So you see it in the Olympics if the guys miss or the women, they're just yeah. flat out doing another lap to try and get back into it. It shocks me how hard it is to hit a target five metres away from you with a gun. Like, I, I, you're watching the cowboy movies and all that. Everyone seems to die, but I didn't realise that we did one yeah. before the World Cup with that, um, that army tour we went on and we had to do it a SWAT team coppers. And we had pulled out like these proper – you put wear suits and there was yeah. like rubber bullet, not uh, rubber, kind of like – they stung you, kind of like a pellet where you shoot it. What are yeah. those? BB right? gun. BB gun but a lot harder. Anyway, yeah. so you'd five metres away from each other. It was just a quick draw competition. Shocked how many times we missed. Yeah, right. Like I a quick, quick draw on each other? Yeah, on each other. So you'd stand <laughs> there and you'd count down, three, go, bang, you try to shoot each other. Fucking bullets going every like – Imagine if you're like – Someone lost an eye before the World Cup. Oh, you had a bloody oh, mask. Oh, you had a mask. On. Okay. But, um, but yeah, that's, that bloody shocked me. But take it back to that that ignition point. You go to the snow once, you build yeah. a jump, and yeah. you fly off it, and you go, all right. I'm I've coming never back been here to the snow since you're 11, and that's the, that's the thing that ignited the spark for you. You haven't been to snow? No, no, no. <clears throat> Mate, when I was seven years old, I wrote, what do I want to be when I get older? Snow skiing instructor. Yeah, right. Kids, you know what? I grew up in Kingaroy. But yeah, my right. mum hated the beach, but we used to go to the snow every two years down at Smiggins and at Perisher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got put into a ski school there and I met this cool American instructor and I thought, fucking, this is the life. Yeah, And yeah. I'm like, that's all I'm going to do. I'm, but football got in the football and other sports got in the way of it. Yep, but, yep. mate, I, I, I'm, I'm so keen later on through the podcast to dig into this lifestyle that you lived because that was what I was chasing as a kid. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a lot of people do look at it. Um, it's ironic because my friend Ash, who I'm staying with, who's here today in the, uh, in the Bay 13, in the cheap seats, <laughs> he, he, um, yeah, he's, he's a ski instructor. I think he's one of the ski instructors who's done the most um, seasons of any ski instructor in Australia. Ash. So he's done He's done like uh, – As in back-to-back. 30-something ski seasons in America and 30-something in Australia, so 60 or 50 ski seasons. Yeah, yeah. 69. So that many ski seasons. Yeah. And it's – it's a bit, in a way, like people who who like maybe people who follow uh, summer festivals, but it's just flipped because people get obsessed with just being in the cold, and you need snow to realise your sport. So it's just, yeah, it's just that flipping of it, and people get obsessed. And if you become a ski instructor, like you were saying, um, it's a it's a job like any other, but you're based in winter, so you just follow those oh, winters, so winter after winter, northern hemisphere, and you can do it by coming. Southern Hemisphere, you can do, uh, you know, New Zealand or Australia. And a lot of people don't even know that there's that great of skiing in Australia. But for years we've had French and Yugoslavian and uh, Austrian instructors, American instructors who come here and they spend winter and then they go back. They have that little break in between a bit of spring and they start getting summer paradise and then they're like, oh, no, I'm back to minus five and it's snowing again. <laughs> can so kind of so from down, uh, that, that first uh, job that you scored – when you were in Melbourne studying, was that at Hotham? Yeah, it was yeah. at Hotham. Yeah, I went for an interview with uh, with a ski club because yeah. a lot of the clubs, a lot of the lodges and clubs up at the up at the mountains, and the same at Threadbar and Parish or up in New South. It's a it's the same. A lot of them are based around a club sort of type thing where they have beds and you can become a club member. Yeah, but you can also rent. Uh, rent a bed out outside outside of that like the public can rent a bed for a night it's like a more affordable way to go skiing so i just applied for a job at one of those just washing dishes i'd only just come out of uh uni doing my arts course and uh, i just applied for a job there i wanted to go to mount buller 
But the woman who uh, interviewed me said, oh, I reckon you'd be a good fit for Hotham. It's just a bit more wild west. It's a big mountain. It's kind of a bit wild up there and I reckon it would suit you. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, I know where it is. I grew up near there but, you know, I was thinking Buller more because a lot more people. And she goes, no. Nah. So I did the interview, got the job um, as a dish pig washing dishes up there and that was, yeah, that's what started me on doing, doing winters. What year was that? Oh, can't even remember. Is like, that early nineties, mid nineties? Yeah, it was. It was at the start of the nineties. Was my first first sort of year up there, or maybe even a little bit before that. But that's yeah, that's kind of when I first went to Hotham. Has it grown much since then? When you look back on those times, like in terms of population in and around the communities there, or yeah, look pretty at, fringe even like back then compared to now. Well, it, it it has, like I said, because of because of things to do with money and affordability, people will go for and do a holiday or hopefully schools, you know, can afford to take crew up there for a week or whatever. But, I mean, it, it has changed in some strange sort of ways to do with things to do with the economy and to do with whether people can afford to sort of go skiing and live in the snow. I mean, and drastic changes over the last few years during lockdowns and all sorts of things like that, like running a ski resort with all those sort of restrictions and people in a, you know, having saunas and spas and all in a lodge together, there were certain things that just didn't work. So, yeah, it, it has it has changed and I'd say the culture's changed quite a bit in terms of uh, the, the kind of people who work there. You know, the, it, that's changed a fair bit. So it's a bit more democratised maybe now, but you've got, you've got a, a working class people who are up there doing service industry essentially, like fitting chains, um, ski instructors – uh, washing dishes, working in bars, and then you've got the people who've got enough money to ski and and enjoy that sort of lifestyle. And some of them will live there nearly all winter if they can run their business from there or, you know, if they're uber wealthy, I guess they can hang there all the time yeah. and own lodges. But that's kind of changed to do probably the same as stuff up here on the coast to do with real estate and wanting a really pr- primo spot. If you've got a good ski lodge near the slopes – you're looking at crazy amounts of money. It's it's kind of out of touch for most people, really. How long did it take until you sort of got the bug where you thought, um, where you actually started to see ridiculous improvements in your skiing? Well, skiing skiing's a really interesting sport, and and that's one of the things I love about the correlation between skiing and surfing. And I've talked to other guys like Quicksilver Athletes because that's the company I ski for. And I've talked to quickie athletes like Travis Rice, who's incredible uh, snowboarder, and some of the other skiers like Candide Thovex from France. And and it's funny because a lot of them surf. Now people would look at it and go, "You've got skate, surf, and um, and snowboarding," and there's a real link. But a lot of the great free skiers around the world all love surfing and they froth on it. And I think there's incredible similarities between it because they're hard sports. I mean, I went surfing this morning down there at the front of the Lennox Hotel and Ash lent me aboard. It's only was only fairly small. But, you know, I haven't been surfing for a few weeks at home and stuff like that. And you just realise how hard a sport it is. You're on a different board and how long it takes to get good. And skiing's a very similar sport to that. I, I don't think you can get the bug of sliding and going fast, but it's quite a technical sport like surfing with edge-to-edge control and giving in and using your weight at the right time and not fighting all the time. It's one of those things where there's so much about flow and it's not until you hit that point. And I think maybe I was a season or two in because I just looked at the guys who were ski racing, who were doing downhill and going fast and the freestyle skiers. I'm like, those guys are the best skiers. I need to, 
I've got to work this out. So I just went and joined a race club, the Mount Hotham Race Club, and learned how to ski race. And that's how I learned to turn the skis properly to do what I wanted to do on skis, which was sort of free ski and do jumps and that. I, I got a, it's a bit of a question from me to you, but at that time, are you sure? What, what else would it be? Oh no, I oh, know. <laughs> do you no, want to talk to who else? Do you want no, to talk no, to? No, no. I mean, it's about how like how you view yourself going down the mountain. I've yeah. I went on my honeymoon. I know this is a weird story, but I went on my honeymoon to Japan skiing on the groomers, which I guess a lot of the skis generally like. My chick was coming up the. Uh, chairlift. I was going as fucking fast as I thought I could go. Yeah, yeah. She filmed it on the phone. It looked like I was fucking doing a slow jog or a walk. I thought I was going close to 100Ks. Was it like that for you? Like when you first start with those guys, they're going so fast. Oh, Is yeah. It- I mean, you can go, there's not many other sports you can go as fast as you can skiing. Fuck, I was you- bad. Well, no. Anyway, that was just the most random way to operate that question, but I just no, no, like I the whole you. relation to watching people go fast. I was like, it's, "Fuck, I'm going as fast as these good guys skiing." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Renee was filming coming up, just the, less control. <laughs> she was filming coming up the chairlift. It looked like I was. It was like uh, like a comedy <laughs> sketch. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to fucking go. I don't know. I just couldn't go far. I guess I was on a shit snowboard. I wasn't really moving, but well, I don't yeah, know, it take I mean, you a while to figure out that stuff. Like, definitely. I mean. Yeah, snowboard and skis are a little different when it comes to handling speed. But yeah, you can go you can go incredibly fast. Like on a pair of skis, even for someone who's a reasonable skier, when they set up those speed traps where you can get you know, you can get timed on them, you can go like 80, 90 kilometers an hour. No worries. Yeah. No worries. And is that in the space of like five hundred meters between the gates? Is it something like that that well, they just they just have a a, a timing oh, thing on a fairly past, not not yeah. doing turns, but just on a, a a run where you've got run out and it's not like if you're doing a skatey thing and you're flying down a hill into cars and that like that sort of thing. But you can people go 80, 90 k's an hour. I mean, I've been through a couple of speed traps and you think, oh, that was smooth, I was going all right, and then you get at the bottom and it comes up 130 or 140. You wow. serious? You were hitting that? Yeah, pace. yeah. No worries. Wow. Oh, and that's that's like downhill speeds. Yeah. But when downhill races, yeah, what are they like, going? Oh, well, they're going those speeds, but they're going those speeds, turning and doing jumps on on slopes that are icy. I remember seeing for, Herman Meyer yeah, crash I, at the Olympics. Herman that one was yeah. like unbelievable. Was he the Slater of downhill skiing? Uh, Alberta was, Tomba was pretty. He was good one too, of them. Tomba, Tomba, yeah. incredible. And there's been yeah. various different uh, skiers uh, on the way through that have become the Slater. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, Stenmark still from he's, way back. Yeah, he's he the was guy what, who 70s, won. wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, and, but he won the most. I think he won uh, like he won 80, 80 World Cup. Yeah, and yeah. he could do slalom, uh, giant slalom and downhill, so all three disciplines. That would be like being able to ride a small wave pool and doing sick airs and, and also jaws. doing jaws. Yeah. That would be the equivalent. Cool. And he was rad at all of them. What was your go-to of when all those sort of – your main sort of event ones and then did you – or would you prefer sort of the backcountry stuff? Well, I prefer the backcountry now and, and when, I, when, I, when I started racing, I actually – it was a means to an end for me. I mean, I went to ski racing not really because I wanted to be a ski racer. I mean, I, I liked watching it. I liked everything about it. But it wasn't something I guess I really aspired to. It was more – I wanted that sort of technique to be able to take into my free skiing to do jumps and ski the, like you say, the back country and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah, it, it was a means to an end. But I realised, and when you look at skiers from all over the world, the best skiers have all been ski racers no matter what. Candide Thovex, all the top guys, Shane McConkey, all the legends yeah. of the sport 
in whatever they do. Shane, very Are sad. they the guys that just go to Alaska and pretty much fucking fall from yeah, like the moon? <laughs> That's it. Send yep. it. And they're, they're, they've been downhill races and things because you have to have technique. It's like if you decide you're going to be rad at some certain type, you know, little mellow part of surfing or any anything, you've still got to be able to yeah, do it. Yeah, you've got to have the right have fundamentals. The essentials and fundamentals and that's yeah. kind of what it's like with big mountain skiing these days. This is a dumb question, but you touched on how fast um, downhill skiers go. Why are they always skiing on icy sections? Well, they have to – essentially ski racing is done on a piece like Woody was saying before. They, they groom ski runs. Grooming was invented way back to kind of make skiing a bit more palatable to people because otherwise when you're doing turns on the snow all the time, everything turns into moguls. There's bumps everywhere, yeah, right. everywhere. Okay. So if it doesn't snow for a week, which is pretty often anywhere in the world – You've got a whole mountain covered in bumps and you've got to be a rad skier or snowboarder yeah. to be able to handle bumps. So it's they groom. Knee reconstruction weight yeah, for the exactly. next exactly. Yeah, know. backs and knees. So yeah. you've only got a limited span. So with technology, they built, you know, those things which is like a bulldozer, uh, you know, a piston bully or a cat and they groom it. And nowadays it's incredible. They winch groom. So they use a winch which is tethered at the top really? on, on a steel cable and they go up the hill so you're not losing all the snow way down into the valley. You're dragging oh. all the snow up. So then it flows putting, down again. Yep, and you're putting it on the slope and replacing it in spots where it might wear out a bit if you've got a thin season and putting a quality snow. And then on the back they run a tiller which is similar, yeah, like to, farming, similar yeah. to your veggie garden. Yep. Yeah. And so it's tilling it. And turning it over and adding air into snow, which is essentially yeah, been so through it's cor- coring it. Exactly, yeah. it's been through a melt, it's like a powder, freeze, fluffy, yeah. top. and then like a greenskeeper for the snow. Greenskeeper presses it down. Beautiful to ski on in the morning. So essentially, you've got a new piece every every day. Crucial for Australia with our the fact that we get so much sun on ours, wouldn't it? Like yep. and totally, yeah, yeah, because the melt freeze thing can happen at any time during the winter. Whereas in North America and Europe, a lot of times you'll you'll get pre-Christmas and into January, you can get times where it never goes above zero. So you've got dry snow with hardly any moisture in it for months. Whereas here, it can happen at any time. You just get a bit of a temp spike, could go five degrees, bit of moisture on it, and then you've got very hard stuff, which is like what you were saying about the ski racing. Because I think it it was a, it was a way of making ski racing, racing faster and also it's a, a way of making it fair because – if they haven't got um, an even playing field. With the conditions. Yeah, which yeah. there's some a little bit of crossover, I guess, into the wave pool thing yeah. where you've got every wave is the same. Yeah. If you've got – if you draw a bib number and they draw bibs so that it's fair, if you draw a bib number 70 and the other guy draws bib number two and you're both really on rad athletes, then, you know, it, once you go at 70, you're going to have massive ruts on the corners where everyone's putting pressure on the ski. So it's pretty unfair. So why in the Olympics then does the last the fastest go last then? I know it's for spectacle, but wouldn't that be well? They usually flip. They usually flip it. Oh, it's two they? runs, and you get to go yeah. first, and then and they flip the it, and then you go okay. you can go last, especially on the second run of GS or slalom, second run, and then it makes it super exciting. It's like almost having a final, the last thirty seconds of a final in surfing. It's kind of similar. I watched the downhill from the previous Olympics. I think it was last year or last winter or the winter before that, and they had the downhill and it was a, like a couple of the favourites just fucked on their second run would just fuck two corners. Yep. And it was a costume. That's it. They went from like top two to like 10th. Yeah, yeah. And there was, it, was a, it was like a random young guy just had the run of his life second run. Yeah, yeah. And just ended up, I think he either got second or first in the – 
in the uh, downhill. Yeah, there was a French guy. Who, yeah, a French who was, guy. Who went super he, well. Yeah, it was incredible. He come incredible. through the thing yeah. and went, holy <laughs> shit, I fucking killed it. Yeah. Like, and he, and he and, and the other guys just melted behind him. Yeah, yeah, for it's sure. It's crazy. And downhill's, downhill's rad like that. Downhill is, has got real similarities to big wave surfing yeah. because – you have to have everything has to be together yeah. here. You have to be able to Commit. cope oh, and cope with what's going on because of the high speed and the airs and, and one how little tweak. Yeah, and how dang, and yeah. how dangerous it is because guys die. Like there was one guy, I think it was in Kitzbühel on the Harnan Calm, which is like the Mavericks or it's the race that scares the hell out of even the best guys. Go, oh my god, the Harnan Calm is gnarly. That sounds. It sounds like a fucking. It's an early word. It sounds like an area out of Lord of the Rings, like Mordor, Han and Kamp. Yeah, it's very similar. It does. It does. Well, so what's that? Is it just a straight, pretty much a straight cliff? Like you just fall off a cliff, pretty much. Well, not so much a straight cliff, but you're basically skiing the whole mountain from the very top. Yeah. But down into the village, you finish at the pub. So you come from the top, and how far is it? Like. Three point something kilometers. I just go straight off my skis and have a shot wow. at a killer. Or and the, the amount of elevation you're dropping, you're going from like yeah. two thousand three hundred meters, probably down to like what's Kitzbühel Village, eight hundred meters or something. Wow. Yeah, that's the amount of elevation. So there's sections which are like seventy degrees steep. Wow. So you're coming over these jumps. Blind, oh, and they're going de- yeah the drop. whole way, and they come over blind, fully angulated over blind corners. And then in the air, and they'll fly 100 metres, 150 metres through the air. So It's like ski that, jumping. You know, totally like thing, ski yeah. jumping yeah. at high speed mixed in with having to have the fastest line. And like you oh. said about that guy from France, it's decided by yeah. thousands of he, a second. He just had a blinder. It was like he just had, he yep. had his Imagine boots up top. Imagine that training. So that's what I love about the Olympics, gymnastics or that downhill. You train yep. four years or it could be your whole life for that one opportunity and one – one yep. fucking turn. Totally. It is. That's it's that it. real chance. Or your fucking boots aren't tight enough or something. You know, like <laughs> yeah, your, yeah. Or yeah. your bindings uh, aren't. Yep. You, you, you forget to actually tighten them up. What's the most technical of those events? Like if you're looking at the best skier, you know what I mean? Who's yep. the guy you go to? Ah, oh, yeah. Look, is it moguls? Is it, you know, like one of the slalom ones? What sort of well, do you look at? Well, yeah, they, they sort of divide skiing up when, when you're talking Olympics and competition these days and – that really occurred a lot to do with X Games and stuff like that because X Games end up taking all the royalty of free skiing, like half pipe skiing yep. and, and, and big airs and that type of thing. Um, and then all the Alpine events went to the Olympics. And so that's they're the kind of blue ribbon things. But as far as technical skiing goes in racing, it's slalom. Um, slalom and GS, they call GS the pure one because it's at high speed but it's got a lot of turns. So it's real. you've got to just be a gun skier to ski GS at a, at those sort of levels. Like a couple of guys I ski with at Hotham, the Laidlaw brothers and um, Louis Moulin who's racing for Australia at the moment in World Cup. I think he's maybe in Europe at the moment. And those guys, you ski with them, it's incredible how fast they ski. Like, you know, I consider myself a good skier. But you go skiing with them and it's another level. They're just incredible, the angulation and power that they put down. Is it correct that you were the first sponsored skier by Quicksilver? Oh, no, no, no. Pretty early on for sure, but I wasn't the first sponsored skier, no. But in that era when skiing was kind of – it was the heyday, you know, that sort of golden era when it was still very much a part um, of 
of those sports where there was pretty big crossover and they even had Robbie Nash, like there was windsurfing going on and all those things. Yeah, then me and my mate Bill Barker, who's from Ulladulla, he's head of uh, Ski Patrol at Hotham now. Yeah, we got sponsored by Quickie um, for skiing and they, they had some rad skiers around the world at that time. They had um, Eric Payota and Trevor Peterson. Um, they had uh, – I think Candide Thovex was on the team then. So they definitely had some good skiers. But I would, I would call it that kind of golden era when it was included in all those sports. But everything now with specialisation, it's become much more specialised. So you don't – like even – I don't think Quickie sponsor Robbie Nash and that anymore because windsurfing and kiteboarding, everything's become seg- segmented. Yeah. Di- almost diluted, eh? They just yeah. go – yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. I, I, like in some ways I get it, but in other ways I just think about how rad quick he was. When in the they days. had every, I yeah. just, It was just mad like Robbie Nash and then, you know, you had Kong, Kong I think for a while and, and, and Slater and uh, MR and different people, all part of that yeah. team and you'd meet up with them and there was really good fertilisation. Like they'd want to come rock climbing or go for a ski and you'd want to go for a surf. There was incredible fertiliser. You were all like adventure, like yeah. really like you're a waterman yeah. or a mountaineer or but you all, yeah. It was great. Well, it was great. if you get everyone together, they all do a different thing, but everyone's fucking tapped as each other. So one guy's crazy in the ocean, one guy's crazy in the mountains, one guy's crazy with fucking a windsurfer. Yeah. Totally. They'd all be yeah. pushing the limits. So it, everyone's got the it. same sort of approach, yeah. but just a happy to share the knowledge. Who, who was yeah. the gnarliest guy you came across? Well, not so much gnarliest, but the guy who just went, fuck, he'll have a go at anything. That Ross bloke. Clark Jones, 100%. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he was seriously radical. Like I've yeah. – you, I, I, I hung out with quite a few of them when they came to visit Hotham because all the, the surfers wanted to go snowboarding or skiing and were just amped on it. So when the Quickie team used to do the 24-7 tour or whatever, going to all the mountains. And Ross, it was the first time I met him at Hotham and I knew what he – I'd seen videos of him and I knew what he did. But he came up with Tom Carroll and the, we were all staying in the same place at the Snowbird it's really funny because he got up there and they were that amped, but it was dark when they arrived, and so they were like, "Oh, can we just like go out on the bottom of the summit, maybe do a few runs now and that?" And I was like, "Oh, I wouldn't. It's not very good lighting in that, Ross. You know, wait till the morning's like, yeah, righto." So they got pretty amped up, <laughs> but he's a bit. He actually, Ross is one of those guys, and I've got to know him quite well over the years. He's a bit like. Um, he reminds me a bit of a soldier because when you're staying in accommodation with him, he seems to have one foot always out under the sleeping bag on the floor and one of his eyes is a bit open. <laughs> and, yeah, Jeff Sweeney and some of the crew used to go, oh, Ross, you know, and I thought it was a joke until I stayed in the room with him and he woke up, I reckon, at 4.30 and he's like, buff, buff, buff. I think it's snowed, man. You've got to get up. Come on. And I was like, it's 4.30. Well, it's not going to be light for a couple of hours and he goes, I'll go and check. I'm like, yeah, go for it, man. <laughs> so he goes upstairs, comes back and he just gets in. He's like, Tom's in the bunk above and he's like, it's snowed, it's snowed, it's on, it's on. And I was like, and then I'm interested. So I'm like, oh, how much? And he goes, at least a centimetre, maybe two <laughs> centimetres. And I'm just like, Ross, that's go it's not going to make any difference. Go back to bed. And he's like, I can't, I can't go back to sleep. So he put all his gear on and went, walked up and down the bottom of the summit <laughs> in the dark. I don't know awesome. for how long. And we got up and it was still just on light. And he came in, he goes, I've had the best morning. <laughs> he was so pumped. It was how amazing. that froth just on light? Yeah. Do, is yeah. it true that Ross Clark Jones has six 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 tattooed on his head? Is that 
True. Oh, I've the, heard that, yeah. but I, I don't know. I know yeah. he used to play around with a little bit with the devil's number and yeah. all that sort of thing, but I'm not sure. I'm ah. not sure because isn't that his birthday? I think so, I yeah. Think Six of the 666, yeah. yeah. But a great guy. It, him and Tom, when they were travelling together and they were up there with some of the – and Hoyo used to come up and uh, a few of the other guys. Yeah, really great just to go. And really interesting, like the crossover between sports, like you were saying before, that fascinated me because I'm not a snowboarder. And I know how long it takes in skiing or surfing for that matter to get down turns where you're just like, this is fucking makes me feel good. This is the turn I want, this turn. And I know how long it takes. And so to watch them on their first few days, I felt like pretty privileged to see that. That was unique to see them. They're strapping in and everything like that. Tom thought about it completely different. He goes, I'm going to get a lesson. Ross is like, you dickhead, what are you doing? Come on, we're going down there. And Hoyo's like, fuck, I'm already there. He's got a beer cracked. He's gone (laughs) in the morning. He'd just been running around all looking for the rugby in Victoria. Everyone's like, go away, mate. He's just <laughs> wanted to watch. Who does he do for? Yeah, Nine. 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 yeah he's just yeah. looking for this. And everyone was like, you're not going to find it on a television. This is pre-Foxtel or anything. Yeah. He's looking for that. Then in the morning, he cracks a beer, goes straight down this gully, just gone. Tom's like, I'm going to get a lesson. And Ross is like, I think I'll follow Hoyo. And you're like, wow, it's incredible. And then watching them, they were all trying to hack off their back foot like they do yeah. on a surfboard from that era. It just didn't work. Tom went for an hour, went out, schooled them. Yeah. Incredible. Flying down and he just was standing on the board and feeling both edges and just doing turns. And Ross like, oh, what the – Tommy, what the fuck? What's going on? He goes, well, I just went and I worked it out. This is what you got to do. And they pulled their energy in, technique, got it. But oh, at the what start. a great story, though. Yeah, yeah just it was that, cool. The three different personalities, like bullet fucking smart, strategic. I love yeah. that. It's almost like a joke. Three guys walk on a snowy <laughs> mountain with snowboards. <laughs> yeah. One gets a lesson, one falls off a cliff, one has a beer. <laughs> but it's a, it's a, it sums up the personalities, but doesn't it? Yeah. When you have a look at their careers. Like the approach. Like you have a look at Tommy Carroll and how yeah. he went about his surfing. You have a look at Ross Clark Jones. Yeah. You go, yeah. fuck. Like when you hear that story, you go, yeah, well, that sums him up. And yeah. Like, yeah. Hoyo. Just, Best mates yeah. of Andrew Johns, you kind of yeah. – Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anything yeah. can happen. You totally, 100%. What about uh, once you got the hang of it, are you are you like – are you starting to read – like in Australia, are you starting to understand how the snow falls, how to predict a good day? Like, like in, we w- yeah. in the in the, in the uh, mountains like we would for, you know, a week-long forecast for surf, you're like, fuck yeah, it's going to be pumping for a week. Uh, can you see that? a year or two into your skiing? Like are you starting to go, all right, fuck, we need to be there then? Yeah, I mean probably not a year or two in. Everyone's got a different take on the weather. I mean I I kind of find it fascinating um, in a way. And when you start backcountry skiing or like big wave surfing or you're doing other things, you know, you you, you really have to have a read on it for safety and um, and for even for conditions for what the snow is going to be like under your skis. But then when you start going into the backcountry, it's much more about avalanches and safety. Because it's a lot – I mean, the big difference, I guess, between um, but between being in the snow and being on essentially what is um, the, the medium you're using, the surface that you're using, even though it's, it's in change, it, it, it's there. Yeah. Whereas water, completely different, and that's the baffling thing to me about it. It's like whitewater kayaking and surfing and stuff. I just go, it is an endless source. It's inspirational, but it's also incredibly frustrating because you can never – Get it 100 percent dollar. You can't. Yeah, you can't. You, never, it. never. Yes, Whereas I can do a ski run seven times, and I know it's basically going to be the same if it's groomed or the yeah. snows. I go, yeah, it's going to be pretty much the same. 
which is sort of the same with rock climbing and other sports like that. But that's the unique thing about surfing, isn't it? I mean, it's always different, which is sort of what's beautiful about it. Yeah, you just en- endless chase. But it, are you waking up certain mornings of a season and just going, you know, it's fucking on today? Like it'd be oh, yeah. pumping at Lennox yeah. or something like that. That's where I'm doing the Ross Club. Is that generally like- through July or August or something like that? Like, is when's the best sort of. I'm, I probably don't want to give it away too much, but is there a certain time of the year through the Australian winter where you're <laughs> giving it? it away too much? Yeah, it's like giving away your favourite yeah. surf spot on a good day. But, it, yeah, it's very similar to that. But you've, you've sort of got to be there on the day. And this year was incredible actually because we were going through La Nina and like big storms coming through but the freezing level was quite high. So you really had to be there to get it. Like to get the storm, you really had to be there at that time. But normally you can you can get a storm, a really good storm, and you can still be skiing it five days later if it stays cold. Yeah. Going into the back country, you know, it'd be like a swell that lasted a few days with a really good wind. But um, this year was sort of unique in a way because there'd be big snow dumps, but sometimes it'd rain at the end of them. So if you weren't there at the time to get it, you miss out. What's your gnarliest backcountry story? Has, been, has there been a time where you've been like avalanches come down and you've just outrun it or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. And yeah, avalanches are are crazy and and you don't want to be near them very often. But at the same time, it's like anything. It's like a bushfire or a flood. This incredible adrenaline and excitement goes through your body. It's undeniable, even though you're dealing with catastrophe, really. It's it's adrenaline. And um, yeah, when I was quite young, my first season, I went to Austria, did a season in St. Anton, which yep. is in the Austrian Alps. And you did five or six there, didn't you? Five or six yeah. seasons, yeah. Nice research. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, and uh, first season I was there and, you know, when you're that old, when you're in your early 20s, you just think you're Superman, you can jump off anything, you're not going to get hurt. Anyway, I hooked up with this uh, guy, Tommy, uh, a Swedish skier, who um, took me under his wing a bit and was showing me around. And he was a gun. He was a gun skier. A lot of the Swedes used to come down to Austria um, and spend the winter because Sweden's got much smaller mountains and doesn't get anywhere near as much snow. So a heap of them had come down and end up in St. Anton with the Aussies and uh, do winters. So I went skiing with this guy and he was a wild skier, big airs, really powerful. I used to love the way he skied. Anyway, one day it had snowed a lot and it was my first season. So it's the first really big snowfall I'd seen where it snowed like a metre overnight and that's a lot of snow with wind up high. And you're in big mountains with couloirs and a lot of wind. So you've got cornices and avalanche danger. Anyway, he took me into this spot. He's like, buff, buff, we go here and then we jump in here. This is the spot. I'm like, yeah, okay, Tommy. And I'm going along and there's little signs along the way as you traverse in. We're the first ones through. There's signs with skull and crossbones on it. <laughs> and I'm just going, Tommy, what's the go with these signs? Don't worry, buff, it's just a warning. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I didn't speak German then. It's all in German. It's basically saying if you go there and something happens, you're on your own and the snow will go down and it can affect people skiing on the piste. So you will oh. be sued and sort of kicked out of the country. But I didn't know that. I'm like, oh, whatever. I'm going yeah. with Tommy. He yeah. knows. He's, it's he's, okay. on, he's on it. So we get to the top and there's like a big cornice and a, and a, and a couloir is like a corridor, they call it. So Between rock, rocks. Rocks yeah. down each side, snow in the middle, usually really steep, and the snow builds up at the top of the mountain from the wind. And then you've got to jump in. There's no other way in. So Tommy launches off and I'm like, oh, yeah, sick, just nails it. Lands. And when he landed this, just this sort of cracking sound. And I looked down like, whoa. And the whole thing started moving. And he went like that. It sort of does it like a big bounce. And he did a big bounce and then it just swallowed him. He was gone and the whole thing was moving at high speed. How far do you reckon he landed when he went off? 
to, to he, him. He did probably like a like a 40-foot air, clean air off the top, 40-foot of flight, and it was probably, you know, 30 feet. The yeah, chorus right. was high. And he flew down, landed clean, but just the impact, that's what the yeah, impact of the it. person – Breaks it away underneath and so the bad layer gave way with all the new snow on top of ice or whatever it was underneath. Yeah, and he went with it and I was just standing there watching, just me and him, looking around going, whoa, this is heavy. And when he stopped, I, I couldn't see him. All the snow stopped and you can sort of hear it making a crackling noise. I couldn't work out what was going on. I was like, whoa. So I virtually – I had to do like a little sidestep jump down into it, slide down, and all that's left is rock hard sort of – crappy snow with gravel in it and bits and pieces of stuff and you had to virtually survival ski your way down which I did got down and luckily his head wasn't covered I mean that's the thing when your head gets covered in an avalanche you're going to suffocate and that's how most people die in avalanches luckily his head was out up to about there so I had to get my ski because I didn't have an avalanche beacon and I didn't have a shovel ridiculous these days you would never do that and you're not allowed are you or not you, well no. not really no, no essentially you're not allowed and it's also it's just most people common sense yeah there's much more yeah. of it around um, yeah. it's it's almost be like having a buoyancy vest on when you're out at Mavericks most people would choose to do that because you know it's a piece of safety equipment. Well, they see those yeah. signs with the skulls and they sort of turn around and go back. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Which, touche, because if I had known, I would have gone back. But I was trusting in Tommy. He spoke German. He knew. But he was like, oh, it's going to be fine. Anyway, we got him out, put the ski down. I dug him out. Ended up having to reach down and undo his buckles on his boot and because I couldn't get his boot out. The snow, because of the friction, goes hard. And couldn't get it out, so I had to get his foot out and then pull the boot out. And then he started panicking when, when v- virtually after I had him out, he started panicking because he, he calmed himself down. He was actually pretty mellow about it. But got his foot into the boot again and clipped in. He goes, Buff, we have to go. Now the police will come and that. <laughs> oh, fuck. It turns like, into a police chase. Well, totally, yeah. It's <laughs> like a Bond movie. Fully. Yeah, which ironically they filmed above us on the next lift up is where I think Her Majesty's Secret Service where he jumps out of the cable car, yeah. was filmed on that yeah. same slope. So he was like, yeah, he was just like, we got to get out of here. And it had gone down and nearly gone across a piece, like a return piece to get everyone back to the village, like thousands <laughs> of skiers every day. It had almost got to there. So basically we skied and then he said, we'll go this way. And we just, like, like when you're in the city, if you're, you know, you're in trouble, you just blend in with people and go, hey, I'm going to reverse my jacket. I'm out of trouble here. And, yeah, just blended in and didn't get done. But he said afterwards, I said, so what do the signs say, Tommy? And they basically say you go into avalanche terrain above the village and people, if you get caught, you leave the country, you get a fine, da-da-da-da, all this, lose your ski pass, you're in big trouble. It was a lesson. It was a real lesson. Jesus. Wow. Don't smoke here. We only set fire through the microphones. <laughs> <laughs>